know, I would be in this group and they would look at me and say, you mean to draw? You mean to do what? <laughs> you know, this is like future telling. How did, the, how did, how do you know this? And it said, I don't, this came from you. This episode of the MindRamp podcast focuses on creative aging, specifically art therapy and its effectiveness in improving quality of life, including lowering the risk factors for cognitive decline and dementia. Hi, I'm Michael C. Patterson, and I will be talking with Angel Duncan. Angel is very active in the field of creative aging and has a fascinating background that combines hard science and the humanities. Angel spent years doing pharmacological research, searching for a drug that could treat Alzheimer's disease, and also has an extensive background in experience in counseling, psychology, and art therapy. I'll pick up the discussion with a segment in which Angel discusses the power of the arts as a therapeutic tool. You know, kind of my philosophy is that art does not lie. So I have people, especially when I I used to work in the psychiatric hospital in San Francisco, I would work with substance abuse Mm. and you would have someone telling me, you know, you're saying what they think you want to hear, but then their art does not reflect that. It's something completely different. Why do you think that happens? Why is art more revealing than, than the spoken word? I just think you're tapping more into that subconscious. I just think that you're working from a subconscious level. You're not conscious normally about what, you know, your process and what you're doing. So, you know, I would be in this group and they would look at me and say, you want me to draw? You want me to do what? <laughs> you know, they do their picture. And then once they start talking about it, what does this mean? And we start, and I start asking them questions and they start actually processing it. I have so many people that would just get freaked out and say, this is like future telling. How did, the, how did, how do you know this? And it said, I don't, this came from you. Because you're pulling things that are deep inside that's just coming out through that art. There was a a child, a little boy who was 12, uh, who had Asperger's, and his father was a primary care physician. The school insisted that he go into the special ed program, and the father would argue he is not special ed. He has Asperger's, but he should be in a normal classroom teaching. And they basically said no. And he said, I think he's not going to get the education that he needs and we'll be homeschooling him. And then he hired me to come. And I actually lived with the family for about a year. And for the full day, we would get up, we had our routine, we would get up in the morning, he actually they had a classroom with a chalkboard and everything. And, um, and I homeschooled him. And the one thing that I incorporated was art, he had never been exposed to art, Don't care if it's pretty, you don't care about the aesthetics. So you're watching their process and some people will just be quiet and they're completely focused. Whereas some people just automatically start talking and start coming out as they're working in the art. It's like their mind and their art are coming. Everything starts to come out. So that was a way he was able, as he was doing his painting, he would start talking about his his art and then things would start to come out from his history. But then when I would sit and ask him, well, tell me about this. What do you see in this? Or what would you title this? That's where he would also process again and tell me what his art represented. What did it mean? So he was like, well, this is my sister and this is my other sister. This is my dad and, and this is my mom. And, and, it, and so as I was asking questions, he was able to articulate it better. So it was both him making it and then both him and I sitting down and talking. 
And sometimes he would just say, like he would talk about his artwork, like this should go here. Or he would say, if he was drawing his family, he would say, he would mention their names and and he would put, like he say, well, she's going to go over here. No, no, no. I need her over here. So it was like he was analyzing that. And then when he finished, I would ask him questions about like, well, you said this is so-and-so sisters. This is this sister. And this is this sister. Why did you want to move her over here? And then he would tell me why. And it was always something psychological. It wasn't technical. It was more psychological. And then um, it was just fascinating, the memories that he was able to articulate. And then I would share that with his father. Um, And he had a social worker, too. And I would share it Mm. with the social worker. And they were just amazed. They were amazed at how well he was doing. He was doing better being homeschooled than he would have been in the public school because he was getting that time and attention. Given what you know now about art therapy, what do you think it was about doing art that enabled him to get more in touch with his emotions? Um, there's something about art that's innate. You know, it's a part of us and we mm-hmm. have a story and I feel like it's part of storytelling and it's what we're designed to do. So I think, you know, even when you look at caveman paintings or you look at the hieroglyphics, you know, people were telling a story. This is their history. This is their their society. This is how it was. And I think that's just a part of human development. I think we all have an urge to create in some form, whether it's through music or art or, or other means. But I think there is something special about art itself that really taps into that subconscious. So you get this, you're, you're on this level between consciousness and unconsciousness mm. that's coming together. And I think art brings that out. I sometimes think of art as adult play. And play in the sense of, you know, childhood play as being a primary learning mechanism for for when we're young. And I think we continue to learn throughout life. And but we use art as this way of exploring the world and exploring our relationship to it. Absolutely. I asked Angel to talk a bit about her friend Dan Cohen and his work, which was documented in the film Alive Inside. And Dan is the guy who who started bringing music and putting headphones. Personalized music, yeah. He um, he's a social worker Mm -hmm. in New York, and he was just seeing these revelations of you know putting these headphones on, and all of a sudden people were just people who are more apathetic would listen to the music and just literally, hence the movie, come alive. You know, and then Michael Rossetti Bennett followed Dan and was able to capture these moments, you know, while he he was working. And it was just this amazing, amazing thing on showing how music taps into these neuro connections. Um, So then he was able to form his foundation that had a good run for a lot of years. So I was really sad that they, um, they had a, that they went bankrupt, but. Henry is the the patient that I'm most familiar with. Was he, did he work with Dan Cohen or? No, he did. That was, yeah, that was, that was that when Mike, able to capture that on video that's what it was like yeah it just went it went viral when it got on youtube because it was just like amazing yes he was one of the people dan worked with yeah if people haven't seen that they really should go and google henry and probably alive inside inside because the it's just amazing it was this was a guy who pretty much was almost catatonic and his sister i think um felt like he's gone and then they put music on and he came alive, his eyes opened, and his favorite singer was Cab Calloway. Yeah, Deb Ferris, she used to work for Music and Memory. She used to work for Dan. 
she formed her foundation after they went bankrupt. So she has what's called Thriving for Life Foundation. Mm -hmm. So she's taking the personalized music, but she's working with me with the art therapy. And she has this beautiful story of a woman that was an, I believe she was an opera singer in New York that got Parkinson's disease and was completely shut down and needed medications to control her behaviors and needed all this stimulation. And just by having her personalized music, she could feed herself. She was more verbal. It was just this, it was like the Henry. It was just amazing. And Mm. this was a woman with Parkinson's. You had talked earlier about the idea of people losing their self when they have Alzheimer's and, uh, you know, there's nobody in there anymore. Uh, does does art therapy help family members and caregivers sort of recognize that there still is a person in there? Absolutely. I have hundreds of stories where, I, I mean, I've, I've had stories where I had family members that were too depressed and felt like I can't go visit my mom or my dad because they have no clue that I'm here. They don't know who I am. They don't know. And it's depre- it's it's too depressing for me. Then their loved one would do an art. They would do a painting and I would ask them about it. And I'm using one lady for an example who was in the very late stages. All she drew was a purple. It just looked like a purple splatter. And I said, tell me about this. What do you see in this? And she said, well, I see my name in here. And this is where I'm from. And I see my son. He visits me. He's good. So that came out of that. And so I was able to share that with the activity director who was able to share that with him. And that really made the difference. So there's times even where family members will come and they don't know what to talk about. The art gives them something to talk about because they're talking about a past memory. Most of the times memories will resurface. Why do you think that happened? Again, you're tapping into something deeper. And I think that's where, I think that's why research, you know, being in the research on both sides, they're so separate. They view each other as so separate. Oh, that, that's research. Right. That's the sciences. Oh, that's arts. That's, that's arts and crafts. That's just past the time. They need each other because the arts really, somewhere in the brain, we are housing memory pockets that, that are being tapped into. That for some reason, we're not able to pick up on a brain scan. We're not able to pick this up on a cognitive scale, but they just painted this picture and this whole memory just came back to them. How is that possible? So this is where I think more research is needed and figuring out, you know, what is happening in the brain that's tapping into these areas. Music also pulls people into that. Music is really taps into it on a deeper level, I think. I also became interested in identity. You know, I have this theory that, you know, a lot of people tend to to believe that they lose their sense of identity, especially when I work with early onset and early stage individuals that they're terrified and they're distressed and they'll say, who am I without my memories? Right. They're losing their episodic memory and the stories that we have of ourselves. So therefore you don't have a self anymore. Exactly. And so I, I, but the art, you know, when you see the art, you know, that person is there. Yeah. Even in the late stages, I mean, Eve, I've worked with people, many people where they would create art and then the next day they they died. Right. But there's their artwork. And that's where there's I have countless stories of these very deeply meaningful insight moments that these people created that I was able to share with their family who would just be sobbing because it would it, it, it had a representational meaning. So, yeah, so that's what got me interested in, in going into research and, and developing like what's happening in the brain and what's happening with this disease and how does this affect your person? 
So how did you get from there to being a research clinician and actually working on, on randomized yeah, control was, trials? It was it was through the Alzheimer's Association. Um, we huh. worked very we worked very closely with Stanford um, the, at the VA in Palo Alto. So I got involved with several of their physicians there and several of the um, their residents that were doing clinical trials. So I would help. I, I assisted in in with them on that level. But I also worked at the University of California, San Francisco. I worked at UCSF with Dr. Bruce Miller, who's head uh, of the neurosciences, um, and his he's FTD, Hicks disease. And I started the program with him. And so I've always, I you know, so I was able, I was dipping my toes even back then in, in research. But to, and then I eventually became full fledged when I was in New Jersey with Michelle Papka. She was doing clinical trials there. She's a psychiatrist, psychologist. And then when I got down to Florida, I worked um, at the Neuropsychiatric Research Center with Fred Sheriff, hmm. who passed away two years ago, actually in July, from ALS. Yeah, he was from Johns Hopkins. He was a neuropsychiatrist, and I was one of his primary clinicians for seven, eight years. Just, yeah, he kind of took my education to a whole nother level. He was just a brilliant, brilliant mind. Saying anything new, but the Alzheimer's drug testing has been a, a failure, pretty much. We haven't found any drug that does anything substantial to uh, treat Alzheimer's. Is, no. that, is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. We've gotten very good. I mean, you know, the, the, we first knew about Alzheimer's in 1906. We're in 2020. I mean, that really shows you how complex the brain is. You yeah. know, we're, it's not centralized. Like with cancer, it's like you're centralizing this area. You get your brain. And there's so many things that are, you got these foreign elements going through the blood brain barrier that's attacking. So it's like, well, what is it happening? What's triggering that? So it's, there, it's just such a complex disease. What we have gotten better at is diagnostics. Um, so diagnostic wise, it is, we were very good at being able to say, you know what, you're on an Alzheimer's track or you have what's called myocognitive impairment prodromal, mm. you have MCI prodromal, which means you have it and it's brewing up in the pot and you're going to tip over. So we're monitoring those people too. The treatment wise has been, and it has, it's been a lot of failure after failure. And it's been very disappointing because they're primarily been focusing only on tau and amyloid, whereas many physicians are arguing that they do not believe in the amyloid hypothesis. They said, we've tried it for so many years. This is not it. We're also seeing, you know, the good news is that there is more attention to the disease. That's the good news is that we're not giving up. Um, now there's push to look at preventative, you know, right. since we're able to say, you know, you are on a track that may possibly develop Alzheimer's and lifestyle factors is a big one. I'm a firm believer that our lifestyle factors really either are going to help increase or decrease the risk. It's right. not going to prevent. There's nothing that's going to prevent it. Um, and I'm a stickler for people who say, oh, this is going to prevent it. That's, that's not fair to say that for people who do kind of go by the book. Um, but there are things you can do to reduce your risk. And I think lifestyle factors play a huge portion in that. So when uh, going back to Dr. Tanzi, Rudy Tanzi, when he talks about a cocktail approach, does he include things like diet and behavioral stuff in that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Rudy's like one of my champions. 
we've had some good conversations about his theories and thoughts. I mean, we're definitely eye to eye on on our thinking in this disease. And um, he's a huge advocate on lifestyle. Yeah, let's be creative, eat right, exercise, get sleep, limit your alcohol, get your apnea treated. You know, he's a he's a champion of, of that. So you deal also with people with Alzheimer's and presumably their caregivers. I do. I work a lot with both with the diagnosis and their caregivers. I, I've done, I used to supervise all the caregiver support groups, but I also ran the myocognitive, the MCI early onset, early stage support groups. Um, and then I do a lot, I would, I facilitate grief and transition groups. And I work with both the person with the diagnosis and, and their family members. So how could, how does art therapy help both sides of that party? The, it the helps, especially yeah. Um, so when I work with couples, it's I it, our whole families. It helps to it just helps to communicate better. It helps them to understand each other better. Instead of just sitting around talking, you have something visual, and the visual can be the most the most empowering and the mm-hmm. most impactful. So when you actually see the image to what was say is somebody saying, it's just it's just. A, Wow, it's just a lot more impactful. So I, an example would be I had a woman, she was 48, early onset. She had two children in high school and her parents were supportive of her and she did not really like to talk about it. Her whole family just did not want to talk. Her husband was in complete denial. He was just like, you are doing this on purpose. You're trying, you don't want to do this. You don't, you know, he's just, he was blaming her. So I had her trace her hand. And I asked her to draw, I said, I want you to put the things that are supportive on the inside of your hand and the things that are not supportive on the outside of your hand. So the inside of her hand, she drew some symbols of things that she could still do independently for herself that she was proud of. And then she wrote her daughter's names. She wrote her parents' names. And then on the outside of her hand, she wrote yelling husband. (laughs) Yeah. And when he saw that, that's when he broke down. It, that was what hit him to realize, you know, and we were able to take it to the next step to realize, you know, let's get out of the denial phase because your wife has a progressive degenerative disease yeah. and we need to, to work together. So we're able to better form communication strategies. We're able to just articulate what needs need to be met and how can we do that? Towards the end of the conversation, I asked Angel what she did to stay healthy and, and to maintain her quality of life. I can't prevent life from happening, so, but I am going to, you know, I do practice what I preach. I do live a healthy lifestyle and I'm doing everything I can to enjoy each and every day as much as I can and making the best of it. So what are those things that you do to sort of ensure that you're going to live not only a long life, but to have quality of life? A productive as, uh, life, yeah. yeah. I definitely watch my food intake. I, I you know, I, I am a sweet tooth. I love the chocolate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love cake. Love yeah. cake. Um, yeah. Um, but I limit, it's all moderation. And, it, you know, really is. It's moderation. So I, I eat healthy. I limit the sugar uh, quite a bit. I don't eat a whole lot of meat. I drink, if I drink a glass, if I drink wine, I usually drink one glass, maybe mm-hmm. four or five ounces. That's it. I do sleep. I sleep very well, seven to nine hours. Nope, I exercise. Yeah, I exercise. What kind of exercise daily. do you do? 
I mix it up. I do yoga. I do Pilates. I have a bike. I'll go right around the bird preserve or lake. Uh, I do spinning. I do free weights, machine weights. I do it all. Um, hiking. Yeah, I, I try to keep a busy life and socialization often gets left out of lifestyle. And that is one of the important things is that we are connected. And that's what's so right. horrible about this pandemic is that right. we are so more social isolated and it's really taken a hit on so many people. I can't, ima- I can't imagine being in high school right now or right. in my early twenties, I would yeah. just be going crazy and having creativity. You know, that's what the whole thing about my podcast is. I think it's important to that. We are constantly having creativity in our life. Tell people about your podcast just quickly so they know where to find you and Yeah. So my podcast is called N2, the letter N, number two, creative aging. I'm on, but mainly, (laughs) mainly Spotify and um, Anchor, the two that I know people go to, go to the most radio public and breaker. Um, But no, mine's more about um, just what people do in life that are creative, what keeps them going, what motivates them. And I want to hear their life stories and hopefully see if that has any influence and positive motivation to entice others to, to get out and do more and be more. Yeah, I discovered your podcast when you, Wendy Miller, who we both know and, and love and admire, uh, she sent me a link to your interview with her. And then there was also the panel discussion with Wendy Miller, Mark Agron, and um, Berna Hubner. Berna Hubner, yeah, thank you. Um, all important people in this world of creative aging, as are you. So it was a lot of fun to, to see that. I recommend checking it out. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to share your expertise in all these different fields. So, My pleasure. Thank you. And thank right. you for all that you do. Thanks for listening in on my conversation with Angel Duncan about art therapy and how it can contribute to positive aging. You can access all of our podcasts for free on the podcast page of our website at www.mindramp.org, where you can find them on your favorite podcast platform. Contact us if you want to work with us to put together your own personalized plan to work on preventing cognitive decline, dementia, and premature aging. And of course, if you're struggling to get started on your brain health plan or you, or you need to figure out exactly what to do or how to overcome obstacles or how to stick with the plan that you've already started, we can coach you through those difficult times. That's it for now. Live long and live well. <laughs>